The silver lining to these kind of moments is it teaches everyone what didn't work, right? And there are a lot of ideas that are great ideas, but just not the right timing. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fintech Leaders, a weekly podcast where we learn from today's global leaders in fintech business and beyond. Coming to you from New York City, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. If you enjoy this conversation, I encourage you to share it and please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows so more people can learn from it. Today, I head down to sunny Miami Beach to sit down with Steve McLaughlin, founder of FT Partners, an investment bank focused exclusively on the financial technology sector, launched from Steve's San Francisco apartment back in 2001. If you're in fintech, you've definitely heard about them and chances are you've probably worked with them or have been to one of their amazing Money 2020 events over the years. We discuss making sense of the current fintech market. What was it that led us here? Steve's expectations for 2023. Will it be an active year for financing rounds, M&A, and IPO activity? What the next decade of fintech might look like and some of the trends that could power the future of our industry around the world, and a lot more. Hope you enjoyed this great conversation with Steve from FT Partners. Steve, thanks for welcoming to your home in beautiful Miami. Great to have you here, Miguel. It's a beautiful day out. It's, it's ideal. Uh, why Miami? Why Miami? Why not? I mean, uh, you know, I lived in San Francisco for 20 years and, uh, you know, with us opening up uh, a New York office when I was out there and a London office and a, a whole bunch of business in, in LATAM and Europe and Eastern Europe and India and Africa, you know, it just made more sense to be on East Coast time zone. Weather, taxes, uh, beach, water, palm trees, can't complain, particularly uh, sitting here in December, uh, in uh, 70 something degree weather. And you're pre pandemic, pre, pre Mayor Suarez era, marketing yes, era. Yes, moved down here in late 2018. So didn't see the pandemic coming, unfortunately. I would have bought more real estate, but um, it's, been, it's been an incredible four years down here. And the amount of people that have come swarming here, you know, during and post pandemic is unbelievable. There isn't a day that goes by that we don't have three or four people over the house for coffees or dinners or, you know, going out or whatever. So it's, it's been, um, you know, probably uh, just an incredible move. I've, I've loved it. That's amazing. Before we started recording, Steve, we were talking a little bit of what's going on out in the market today. And, and I think a lot of the audience, are, they're going to be interested in, in your take, right? Um, you, you see both private and public markets. You're, I always say that you're one of those very few people that are right in the middle of the industry and in the information flow. So let's start making sense of, of this. Um, what's going on in the market? What, what are you seeing? What happened yeah. that took us here? Yeah, I think, you know, first and foremost, um, you know, if you think about where this ran up to, and I'll just go way back for two seconds. You know, I started the company in 2002. Um, you know, there was nothing going on in the market. And 9-11 had just happened. The war is breaking out. And um, it was kind of the worst time you know, for tech investing and tech M&A in and, and a long time. But it was also an amazing opportunity uh, to get into fintech for me. 
uh, or not even get in it. I was already in it for six years before that, but start my own company. And so you really had a slow run up uh, over 20 years, you know, as the internet became more of a thing, as mobile phones became more of a thing, as, as the world started getting completely wired up and going global, it just, everything was clicking on all cylinders and there just was a tremendous, tremendous upside to be had. And I think what happened was, you know, you had so many companies, so many entrepreneurs go out and capital was very freely uh, distributed. You know, capital was cheap. It was available. People were looking to find the next, the next big thing, right? And so what happened was you had a lot of amazing companies get created out of all that. I mean, Stripe didn't exist in 2008. You know, Square, some incredible companies got created. And, and I think that a lot of people saw that. And uh, said, wow, fintech can be huge, right? Any sector, uh, you know, there can be breakout winners. And I still have seen that, and I still think it's going to be true. And whether it's a bill.com at 10 plus billion dollars or um, any number of companies you could point to, or just today, Coupa got bought for $8 billion by Toma Bravo. Um, you know, there's been some incredible companies started out of nothing over the last 20 years. However, things did get overheated. Right. There was the level of FOMO, the level of valuations, the level of um, people just sort of collectively buying into the fact that any company could become Stripe. And and that was on the Stripe of this, on the square of that, on the X, Y, Z of, of uh, you name it. Um, I think the euphoria just got a little bit too much, quite frankly. And I think one of the things that happened was you had and still have too many companies competing in every single segment of the market, right? Digital banking, probably don't need 45 digital banks um, all competing with each other at the same time for the same AdWords, for the same segment of the market. Um, and every one of them has got a bit of a unique take on it, but it, collectively, it's a lot. But the same thing goes in open banking, same thing goes in lending, same thing goes in you know consumer insure tech. And every sector, you know, wound up having way too many people competing in it. And that sort of diluted the talent. I think it diluted the capital um, and it's created fierce price competition and and that's just not sustainable. So as things kind of rode up, a lot of money was made and, you know, I think everyone was rushing for the IPO doors last couple of years and, you know, my old buddies at Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley and they, they took a lot of companies public that on index basis are down 60, 70% uh, on a lot of them that were money burning, hadn't quite figured out their business models. So I think now you're seeing this massive backlash. There have been like zero fintech IPOs of any substance this year, and it may not be any for the next couple of quarters. So the market's definitely retrenching and uh, in, a, in a big, big way and creating an enormous amount of lack of FOMO. It's like fear of being in. Phobie <laughs> uh, is, is sort of hitting the market right now. Yeah. Phobie, you just coined that right now. There you go. Fear of being <laughs> in. <laughs> well, one of the things, so I'm, I'm also in the market as an investor, and one of the things that you talk to companies about is you can wait, but you probably, as a company, you probably cannot wait longer than funds. Funds can be very, very patient. Um, 2022 has seen a, a very slow market of especially Series B and beyond. Are you also expecting a slow 2023? Yeah, I think so. I think the... Um you know, the, the investors can definitely outweigh the companies, right? 
Um, and I think you, you think about the investor base out there and, you know, they, they have the portfolio that they have that was in the ground as the market started, you know, kind of, you know, falling apart from a valuation perspective. And then, like I said, the paralysis kind of set in, like, you know, um, to some extent, you saw a lot of the investors that created the big run up were the ones that used to be public market investors or have hedge funds and they started private investing. So just as quick as they went into private investing and went very deep in that, they shifted back to public, right? Because the public stocks, like I said, on the IPOs and a whole bunch of other, you know, already public companies got cremated in terms of their multiples. And, and I'm not giving any investment advice, but I think I oversold in a lot of cases, right? And so uh, I talked to an investor yesterday in San Francisco, who's a, one of the guys who ran up the market. And he said, look, we're licking our chops and we're investing in a lot of public companies right now. And we're not doing anything in privates of any substance. Um, maybe they're writing five and $10 million checks, but they're not writing a hundred, $200 million checks. And so, um, uh, and they, so people are licking their wounds, taking care of their current portfolios, seeing where the winners are, seeing where the losers are, putting band-aids on things or tourniquets, whatever you want to call it. And then they're being very, very, very careful on whatever's remaining in their funds. I think some of these funds realize if this fund doesn't do well, there's not going to be another fund. So they'd rather wait and wait and wait for the right deal for markets to sell out, for valuations to settle down and to find the right deal. Um, and uh, I think that's going to start happening somewhere in the next two quarters. Uh, but unfortunately, I think along the way, some of the companies that you know didn't capitulate quicker on valuation are probably not going to be able to find the capital they need and may just simply run out of capital and have to sell for peanuts or go out of business. We've already seen companies with $10, $15, 20000000 million of ARR that were burning too much money. Again, not our clients, but other, other companies we know of. Um, literally just have to fold doors, right? And um, and uh, I think that's going to happen more and more or the fire sales will start happening. So it's a tricky, tricky environment right now. And I think this whole notion of, oh, there's so much money on the sidelines, it's got to get back to work. Yeah, eventually, but maybe not in the window that you need the capital. So um, I do think uh, it's a whole other subject for another podcast. It's a great time to be starting a business, I think, in terms of like getting early stage money seems to be more available than the mid-stage or later stage money. But yeah. It's a tricky time in the market. Speaking of M&A, uh, so you mentioned there's absolutely going to be more fire sales. There's going to be more closings. But there's also very high quality companies out there that are going to look uh, for, for an M&A path that's not necessarily a fire sale. It's actually joining forces with a bigger firm, maybe with some other comparable firm in the market. But there's going to be a lot out there. Uh, as a, an investment banker, how are you and your team identifying the companies that you want to work with um, in, yeah. a, in a very active, possibly active 2023? Yeah, and, and again, it's not to be doom and gloom, but I mean, there is, there is a lot of that out in the marketplace right now. But at the same time, we're seeing some incredible companies that are still killing it in terms of growth and profitability and, and, um, and, and getting decent rounds done. Um, and but I don't I don't think that the M and A boom that everyone thinks might be coming is gonna is gonna come as quick as they think it is. I mean, is is you know again having Toma Bravo buy a very very well established company, a very well run company like Coupa um, in an LBO, it tells you a couple things. One was you know some really really smart people. I have a mass amount of respect for for Toma Bravo. You know, thought the world of that company enough to buy it at a thirty percent or whatever it is premium to market. And, you know, think that there's a massive, you know, upside for that company, right? But what's interesting is why was Toma Bravo able to buy that company and not a single strategic on earth 
could compete with them, right, to win the deal. Um, our intel tells us there was other, only other real PE firms in there, and the strategics you would expect, um, Oracle, SAP, you know, Workday, whoever, you know, were not, you know, competitive bidders there, because if they were, they would have won. So in a situation like that, it starts to kind of indicate that maybe the strategic bidders aren't just going to buy what's available. And, uh, you know, someone that has no synergies probably isn't going to be able to use a ton of leverage on a deal like that, you know, can outbid every strategic in the world. It just goes to to show you. And then you look at Bill Trust that got bought, um, you know, that's another example. So you're seeing private equity firms, you know, be aggressive much more than strategics. We did sell a company called Talia to SAP, um, you know, not that long ago. So you, you are seeing guys like SAP be active. But um, I would say the strategic M&A activity is going to be, I would say, fairly light, um, you know, over the next year, um, except for probably the smaller deals where, you know, companies are having a hard time. So, again, um, we are working on some that are multi-billion dollar deals that are going to get done by good companies, but I just don't think it's going to be the euphoric M&A boom everyone thinks it is. You have been in the market for over two decades, but with FT. So that means you've seen different iterations, you've been through cycles. So we're now definitely at the bottom or close to the bottom of, of you know, what's been a boom. Tell, tell us about your expectations for the next decade of fintech. How do you think is, is going to look? One thing that I do say is I think the next decade of fintech is going to be a lot less obvious than the last one. And specialists are are actually going to have an advantage because uh, it's not going to be as simple as digitizing yeah. a bank, digitizing some analog version. Um, what's your take here? Yeah, I think the, the, the silver lining to these kind of moments is it teaches everyone what didn't work, right? And there are a lot of ideas that are great ideas, but just not the right timing, right? Too many competitors, not exactly the right business model. Um, you know, maybe over relying on third party, you know, debt funding. Maybe it's uh, over relying on building a consumer brand, right? It's pretty hard to build a consumer brand in um, home and auto insurance when you've got Geico, Allstate, Progressive, you know, and six other companies spending billions and billions of dollars a year. You know, that's really hard to do. And, uh, and so, as an example, um, so there's going to be a lot of learnings around what didn't work, right? And I think entrepreneurs and VCs are smart enough, for sure, to not repeat them. So therefore, they need to invent things that are going to work. And they're going to look at the things that did work and, and implement those. And so I think without naming specific business models or companies, it's going to be businesses that are, let's say, using data uh, to its greatest advantage, right? At the end of the day, data and risk management and underwriting are the underpinnings of financial services, right? And I think one of the problems with fintech broadly is everything is extremely siloed, right? If I'm one company selling, you know, auto insurance policies, I have a limited amount of data on you, a limited amount of time to judge you as an underwriting candidate, and I have one product to sell you, right? That is very hard to do, right? You know, we looked at companies like Revolut, where um, you know, we raised $1.25 billion for them last year at $33 billion, you know, uh, valuation. You know, they're building what we think is an incredible global super out, right? So this is not a paid advertising for Revolut. We actually just really love what they're doing. Um, and they're able to take a customer um, and follow them for their life journey from a 
teenager if they start there up to in retirement age and sell them pretty much every product you could think of in terms of checking, banking, money transfer. Um, they built their own pet insurance company from scratch. They're doing e-commerce enablement. They're doing payments. They're doing small business payroll. They're basically building all of these things from scratch. And they're collecting more and more and more data about you and be able to offer you more and more services with extremely low acquisition costs. So I, I'm not sort of saying the only solution is a super app, but you know that is a way to collect an immense amount of data on an individual, know what they need, when they need it, and be able to get it to them at a lower cost than anybody else. And that's real value add, right? I think a lot of the business models were not fully focused on the whole unit cost economics. Am I adding enough value right, that someone's going to come to me, you know, without me having to spend $3,000 to acquire them to sell them a $2,000 product once, right? And that was what was broken with like the, you know, one-time lending type businesses. So anything that's like a one-time product with low renewals, anything that's consumer focused, it's one product, um, anything that's B2B focused with huge amount of churn um, and going direct to the business. And you're going to see a lot more um, firms out there go uh, and build businesses where they're they're focused on partnering with other people that already have the customer to go out and find the customer if it's a consumer or an SMB from scratch and sell them your one product probably not going to work too well. So I'm looking forward to a lot of huge businesses being built out of this, um, just like they were out of the financial crisis of 2010 11. Um, and um, yeah, we're very very bullish on everything fintech. Uh, over the 10 to 20 year horizon. So that we always have been and um, the space never ceases to amaze me at how innovative people can be in the biz- building new business models. Um, we're even bullish, uh, you know, on blockchain, you've got FTX, everything else going on out there and all sorts of contagion going on. But 20 years from now, you know, our view is it is a big part of the world that we live in. And almost every conversation I have, people are building some part of their business model, you know, catered to blockchain or their own version of, of the blockchain. So the the innovation is going to be um, incredible over the next 20 years. I, I do think that globalization is going to play a big part. I think AI and ML, not to use buzzwords, um, we're starting to see that creep more and more into the depths of these companies. So, yeah, incredibly excited about it. You mentioned Revolut. They're probably, along with PayPal and a couple others, they're probably one of the most international fintech companies out there. What's your take on uh, fintech outside of the U.S.? Because a lot of founders and operators outside of the U.S., they, one of the worries is like, oh, in times of crisis, we are, are going to refocus back home and home being the U.S. I think that would be a big mistake. I think there are, um, you know, we're active on, you know, all continents outside of Antarctica and, you know, whether it's, you know, India slash Asia, you know, Africa, LATAM, um, you know, some of these economies are actually doing quite well. You go to India, they're not having the same kind of like stock market plummet here uh, that we're having here. And the companies that we're working with over there are still growing really nicely um, and having good access to capital. So uh, same thing for Africa. I mean, we've got companies in Africa growing 150% a year, unabated and profitable. So, you know, there's, um, there's uh, I think, a tremendous opportunity in, in these other regions around the world as much as there is in the U.S. I mean, the U.S. is a massive economy, so it's like, you know, Western Europe uh, and Asia, but some of the more emerging markets can be the best place to put money. And I think, unfortunately, um, a lot of investors are nervous about putting money in those markets. So valuations tend to be a little bit depressed, 
but you know some of the really smart investors are finding really great investments in those markets and they're 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 killing it so um you look at cloudwalk in brazil or you know uh, mfs africa in, in africa um or tunes in uh in southeast asia you know these are incredible companies that um are growing 100 percent plus or minus a year and uh you know, a lot of people haven't heard of them, um, yeah. but uh, they're doing incredibly well. And another important fact when you look at these companies and these markets, these entrepreneurs are used to managing a crisis. They have the playbook. They're used to building in markets and environments without a lot of availability of capital. So it's actually their time to thrive, right? if you think about it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, the thing about fintech is, you know, financial services is meant to be tech enabled, right? I mean, there is no hard product. You know, we're sitting here with bottles of water in front of us and coffees and microphones and laptops. These are hardware, right? And, and you know, financial services is all data, risk, information, you know, unless you're talking about a physical credit card or a credit card terminal. I mean, most of it is is digit, digital to begin with. Even even the old, um, old school financial services is now digital, right? Um, and so, you know, to me, it just is ripe for innovation. Um, and, and I'd say like not many areas of the world of financial services have been solved, right? It's not like anyone has the perfect um, way to go invest money, the perfect way to save money, the perfect way to budget. And it's still enormous um, uh, opportunity. And all the great companies that have been created, to me, they haven't really solved, you know, any single massive problem, right? Because a lot of companies, they get to be a billion dollars and someone buys them, right? Chase buys it or you know, Prudential buys a company and, 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 and they absorb it in and, you know, and then someone else will go innovate, right? So, you know, um, it's, uh, it's still in the early, early innings. And uh, look, people tend to mistake the fact that, you know, okay, because there's, you know, some tricky situations in tech and tech valuations and companies that may go under, I mean, that's just venture capital, right? Everyone knows that, you know, not every company Sequoia invests in um, is going to be WhatsApp, right? And so there's going to be some disasters along the way. And there's not a single person listening to this podcast that thought, you know, everything in tech was going to literally grow to the moon and no one was going to lose money and there wasn't going to be a crash. Every single person listening knew this market was going to crater at some point. And if you kept plowing money into the market, you you were taking risks uh, and, and you may have been very re- rewarded with them if you kept plowing in 16 and 17 and 18 and 19 and sold in 21. But if you didn't, you know, you're going to lose a little bit of money. But, you know, I think it's time to, you know, put money to work over the course of 23. And that's when some of the biggest gains are going to happen. We all know some of the biggest gains, some of the best IRRs are going to happen investing in companies at, at sort of the, the the bottom or the more conservative end of the market. And the next decade is going to be a, a big one. You know, it's, it's going to happen. Let's talk a little bit about the entrepreneurs. You have worked with not one, not two, but many who you met them at the idea stage or you started talking to them when they were, they were at the Cedar A and then you took them public. You, you know, so um, you've, you've definitely seen some of the commonalities of the best people in the market building valuable companies. Do you, do you think they have something in common? You know, part of it is uh, none of them really want to go work at big companies and they want to go break out and do something on their own, you know, and and, uh, you know, it takes, it, it, it's a big risk to go out and do that, right? And, and um, there's a lot of these guys have, and gals have, have failed along the way. And they'll fail fast and get it back up on your feet and do it again um, is 
is a skill that's critical, not just that your business fails, but maybe an idea fails and employee quits. I mean, it's a, it's a lonely journey. I mean, I, I'm a founder myself, and so I've, I've been there in the early days of running out of money and not having any business and working out of your apartment or whatever it is, and it's lonely. And uh, but but it's it's also very rewarding, right? The risk and the return. To me, it's it's the return for a lot of these guys. It's just the energy they get um, and the excitement they get out of it. The thrill seeking of it all, you know, is is as much as the financial rewards can be. And and um, I mean, it's the financial rewards are critical to be out there to to go seek. But to me, the probably the biggest commonality is just an incredible level of of optimism um, and feverish um, energy um, and a no fail attitude, right? An absolute no fail attitude that no one is going to stop, you know, me from succeeding or my company from succeeding. And um, if without that every entrepreneur would fail, right? So you have to believe in yourself and you have to take rejection. Not everyone's going to think your idea is the greatest and, and, or that you're going to succeed, but you need to go find the people that support you. And, um, the entrepreneurs I know, and they, they've willpowered themselves into business. They've willpowered themselves into every round of financing because like ideas are, are great and everything. Um, but like anyone can sort of look at any startup that gets a seed round and just copy it. Right. But who's going to actually be successful is the entrepreneur that actually executes. And, you know, for better or for worse, sacrifices a huge amount of their personal life um, in order to be successful. Because I know most, if not all, of the entrepreneurs that I know are literally working 24-7. This Elon Musk stuff about sleeping on the factory floor and, you know, becoming kind of a psychotic, you know, workaholic. I mean, that's really what it takes to become, you know, successful. And I, I... I, I'm not saying I endorse that or think that's the best way to run a company, but um, it's not for the faint of heart at all. And there's always moments of despair and and um, fear and and uh, all that kind of fun stuff. But you know, you have to be completely, completely, and utterly dedicated to actually be successful. You can build a mediocre business, um, but look, and kudos to anyone that can do this in some sort of much smoother way that I'm describing. I mean, I don't know anyone like that. Um, everyone I know that's ever built a business has been, you know just absolutely crushed by it and consumed by it. And, um, you know, again, that's, that's tough, but that's, that's life. Yeah. And, and on that point, last time I saw you was, uh, in Vegas, money 2020. Um, you know, you, <laughs> you had an amazing show, uh, post, post Malone was there. Uh, you know, I think just, it was the event of the year for FinTech, but for you, it's not all, party and and just you know celebrity shows you actually are a workhorse yourself uh and and you are over 22 years almost in the business as a founder and i i i i i've seen it through your emails your response times and i i know through people that have worked with you you're also working very hard still as if you probably are working similar hours to your uh goldman uh, associate years uh what pushes you to work that hard you know, um, well, first of all, thank you. And, and, but yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm one of those guys that I described and I'm, I'm a hard worker and I, I don't know how to stop. Um, but the, at this point, at the beginning it was fear of failure, right? And I just really wanted to build something successful. And, you know, I honestly believe it just was, was so worried that it, I would disappoint clients or employees or whatever, um, that it just, you know, worked a hundred times harder than, than probably I had to and, and made sure everything was successful. Now, you know, 20 years in, we're close to 300 people 
and we build a global franchise and it just becomes, wow, how do we get to the next 20 years? Right. And so, you know, right now it's all about, um, you know, um, you know, getting through these weird times that we're in right now, which we're through and building something that can be sustainable for a long time. And so I've got 300 people that, you know, count on each other, count on me to build something. And I want to build a few partners to be around in a hundred years from now, even, you know, when I'm dead, I want it to be here, you know, but look, as, as crazy as the whole entrepreneurial journey is, and it's been for me, you know, I now have, you know, uh, uh, a child and another one on the way. And you, know, you want to seek a little bit more life, work-life balance. And so, you know, I think as you get older and you want to, you know, build your team. So lucky for me, we've spent 20 years building up a team. I've got some people that have been here since six months in and some that have been here a decade plus plus. And, you know, we've finally, after 20 something years, got to be the point where the, the company runs incredibly well and I could get hit by a bus tomorrow and it would keep churning on. We have an amazing team. So to me, I've been able to get a little bit more, you know, uh, time with the family and, and, you know, hanging out with you here on the back porch doing podcasts and <laughs> I probably should be working on my deals right now or playing with my kid, but, uh, you, <laughs> you, you got me, but, uh, no, this is a lot of fun, but, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, hard work, determination, it's critical and, um, um, definitely a workhorse, but, uh, definitely, uh, a softie for my kids and and that's uh critical too any hobbies these days hobbies no 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 real hobbies uh right now uh just family and and work love it good stuff well, steve thanks a lot uh fantastic conversation people are gonna like it i guarantee you uh but we'll we'll have to do a, a refresh in, in a year to see where the market went sounds good miguel thanks for coming over and thanks for doing this Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this episode with Steve McLaughlin, founder of FT Partners. If you want more interviews, make sure to subscribe, follow, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever you get your shows. It helps and means a lot. And if you have any suggestions or thoughts about the show, please drop me a line on Twitter or LinkedIn. Signing off till next week, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. <laughs>